Can you guys hear me out there? I know it's probably been, oh, I don't know, like maybe two years since you've heard me. Um, but I think my microphone still works. And um, so I'm just going to sit down and try and record a podcast again for the first time in forever. For the first time in forever, I'm recording a podcast. Hi guys, it's Jenny. <laughs> did you miss me? <gasps> I bet you did. Um, it's Jenny. I'm here to record an episode of the Struggling Arche- Archaeologist Guide to Getting Dirty. See, it's been so long I can't even say the name of the podcast anymore. Um, hi. So this was a really long, weird, rambly introduction because it's awkward because I haven't had a podcast out in a long time. <laughs> so anyway, this is me trying to say hi. I'm sorry. I know it's weird, um, but I really, really wanted to try and get a podcast out to you guys sometime in 2019. And so since it's February, I thought it was about time that I sit down and actually try to do it. Um, so I've missed you guys. I've had this podcast actually written for, it's been mostly written for about a year, um, and I, I think I put the finishing touches on it a couple of months ago, but um, it's been a really, really busy, hectic two years in my life, guys. And so apologies, all of that stuff, but um, sometimes it's just that certain things do not remain priorities when other things in your life have taken over. And so that is unfortunately this podcast. <laughs> hello there it's jenny from the future and i'm editing the episode and um jenny from the future wanted to pop in here and deliver a quick little message that will help explain something you're about to hear and um i have a wee bit of a confession to make uh, and that is that um i recorded this episode and then i had to re-record some of it And then I got really distracted again with life, as I will be telling you shortly. Things are really, really, really busy for me right now. And that was kind of Swedish. Um, But anyway, uh, I got a wee bit uh, delayed uh, in editing the episode. And um, so I recorded it in... uh, I began recording it in February of 2019. And it is now February of 2020. Yeah. So that happened and uh, we're just going to ignore the fact that I'm about to tell you about everything that was happening in my life in 2019 because it's not 2019 anymore, Um, it's 2020 now. But you know, kind of same deal, uh, life is really busy and I've got a four-year-old now and I'm working full-time. I'm going to tell you all about it in just a minute. But anyway, um, yeah, so when you hear that part, just, uh, you know, just uh, roll your eyes with me and I hope you guys give me some grace because um, I knew I had to finish editing this episode for so long and then I just couldn't get to it and it just getting pushed back and pushed back further and further away until finally this week I was like, for God's sake, I gotta finish this episode. I don't even know what my accent has been for the last minute, by the way. The Scottish one just completely disappeared. There'll be more of that later, I promise you. But anyway, um, future 
Jenny from the editing room is just here to let you know that this episode was recorded a long time ago and I'm very sorry for the discrepancy in when it's released and the things that I'm talking about when it's happening. So um, anyway, now that you know that, you can listen to the rest of the episode and enjoy it for what it is. I still think it's going to be fantastic um, and I am actually going to be splitting it up into two episodes so you have that to look forward to as well. So now back to the show enjoy my 2019 podcast it's really great bye but i still care about it i still care about you guys and i'm hoping that i will be able to continue making podcasts for you just obviously not as as often as i used to because i am the mother of a three-year-old now and so having a three-year-old um takes up a lot of your time and energy I am working full-time at Temple University. I, we, my family relocated a year ago to the Philadelphia region, and we're really enjoying it here. But that move was big and long and very um, intense and crazy. So we're no longer in New Mexico. Um, things have just been nuts for us. There's been a lot of changes. And so um, it's taken me a long time to be able to sit down and actually like give this the attention that it needs um so anyway what do we do now that we're back do i even remember how to do this oh i don't know okay yeah of course i do it's easy all we got to do is sit down and talk and um because i'm working from home today i have an hour long lunch break and i was like you know what my house is quiet my kids at daycare right now i am gonna sit down and I'm going to record a podcast for the peoples. So let's see. What if I ha- what, do, what do I have in the works for you guys? Um, so I'm sure you're all aware of my ongoing love affair with Scotland and the Scottish people and Scottish history. So for a very long time, I've wanted to sit down and record a podcast related to Scottish history. And so I had the idea um, quite a while ago to do a podcast about... Um, the Glorious Revolution, and the Glencoe Massacre. And so that is what we're here for today. Um, and so I it, I think it all started with, I, I watched, for some reason I was interested in the subject again in reviewing it, and I came across a really good documentary on YouTube, and my husband and I watched it, and we were just like, this is the craziest story. Like, why don't more people know about this? Um it's 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 a terrible event in history um unfortunately that just um it deserves to be talked about more and it's really important in the context of what was going on in britain during the 17th century and 18th century too to be honest so um yeah i've always wanted to talk about it more about this time period in this region so i i have a lot of information for you guys today because I went a little research crazy on this subject and I feel like I could just talk about it for hours um, because there's so much involved in it. There's just so much going on. But um, so I'm trying to limit myself a little bit. But just a fair warning, I'm going to see how this goes and there's a good chance that this podcast will end up being broken up into two episodes about this subject because there's just way too much and I don't want to tie myself down 
and only get halfway into the topics that I want to talk about today. So I'm just fair warning, that's probably happening. And so um, I'm going to start off, we're just going to be focusing on this. I don't have any shorty news or news and goings on from around the spheroid for you today. We're just talking about Scotland, which is like my dream come true, basically. Um, aside from actually being in Scotland, talking about Scotland to Scottish people. Um, so this is like the second best thing, I guess. Anyway, um, you'll probably hear my Scottish accent at some point. So fair warning for that. If you're Scottish, I apologize. I mean, it's not the worst Scottish accent you've ever heard, I'm sure. But, you know, it's not going to be great. <laughs> but it's definitely going to happen. So be prepared. Be prepared. Sorry. Um, so much Disney songs. So many Disney songs already. It's only like been three minutes. Ah, it's been a long time. I missed this. Anyway, let's get started. We're going to jump in to the pod. And I hope you guys are ready because I'm so excited. Let's do it. Okay, so... Just a brief overview. The Glencoe Massacre was an event that happened on February 13th, 1692. Happened in Glencoe, which is um, near Fort William in Scotland, which is uh, located in the Western Highlands. Now, if you guys know, um, because I'm sure I've talked about it on the pod before, I have Scottish heritage. Uh, my last name is Scottish, obviously. And so my family from what I understand, comes from the Northeastern Highlands area. Um, so I will probably do a little bit of a maybe thing about my Scottish history at some point. But I also talked about this on an episode of the Anomaly podcast that I did um, where we talked about the Outlander series. So if you want some more information about my Scottish background and you love Outlander... <laughs> then um, why don't you go find that episode on my friend Jen's fantastic podcast about geeky, um, wonderful girls in um, in sci-fi and fantasy and the entire just world of geeky wonderfulness um, out there in pop culture. Then check out the Anomaly podcast and my episode on it. Okay, so anyway, that's that. Um, so the Glencoe Massacre... Um, was an event that happened during the first Jacobite uprising. Um, this was an ongoing struggle that um, took place in the wake of the Glorious Revolution. And that was sort of a, an event in English history where the monarchy got shaken up a bit. And at the end of that revolution, you ended up with William and Mary on the English throne. And I'm sure you've probably heard, obviously, William and Mary, big figures in English history, right? Yes. Um, so this sort of stems from the entire chain of events um, leading up to William and Mary taking the English throne and everything that happened in the immediate aftermath. So um, that's just for starters. <laughs> um, so let's go into a little bit of a background so that you understand the setup for why the Glencoe Massacre happened. So it all has to do with this dude named James II. All right, James II was an English monarch. Um, he was known as James VII in Scotland, but once he ascended the English throne in 1685, he became James II. 
he ascended the throne because he was next in line. His brother was King Charles II, and after Charles died, James became king. So, um, James, interesting guy. His reign was characterized by the growing tension between him and Parliament. Um, so this was a really uneasy time when James took over. Parliament was really um, worried about the fact that James was a Roman Catholic. And if you know anything about the English monarchy, you probably know that they are not really into Catholicism. And so this was a problem. Um, one of the main problems about James II being a Roman Catholic was that he was trying to create an environment where Roman Catholicism could spread throughout the realms of Britain. Um, and so he wanted to in engage policies of religious tolerance so that there was more acceptance of Catholicism. And he believed that more Catholics should come to England, Scotland, and Ireland, and that there should be people converting to Catholicism and that it should be more accepted. Now, in general, yay, that, that's not a terrible thing um, unless you're the English uh, ruling class, in which case it is a bad thing. Um, they were worried that James would become sort of an absolutist when it came to his Catholic faith and that he would try to basically convert the main religion of England to Catholicism um, from Anglicanism. So this was a bad thing. They didn't want this. Um, and it became even worse when James II had his son and the heir to the English throne. Um, now, of course, his son, he had a son who was baptized Catholic. Um, so the heir to the throne was now Catholic. This wouldn't have been very good if you were, you know, part of the old school and you wanted to keep Eng uh, England from going Catholic, you don't, that's no bueno. So it led to a lot of the English nobles and members of parliament um, to sort of collude with the Dutch ruler William of Orange to overthrow James and make sure that England stayed safely Protestant, nothing, you know, no chance of flipping ships here and going full bore Catholic. So they wanted a, a Protestant ruler, and so they went to the ruler of um, the Netherlands, William of Orange. And so he was like, yeah, I'll help you overthrow James. Um, yeah, I'll become your king. Sure. So that's what the Glorious Revolution of 1688 was. It was William and the English uh, ruling class and parliament overthrowing King James II. Now, one of the really interesting things about this happening was that William of Orange happened to be married to this chick named Mary, William and Mary, right? Um, cool, except that Mary was James's daughter? Uh, awkward. Yeah, totes awkward, you guys. James had two daughters and that, that are pretty important in English history. Um, so this was his original heir, his, his daughter Mary. Um, she was born um, and she, be, she was Anglican. She was not Catholic. And so 
she left. She married another Protestant, William. And they were like, hey, we're, ruling, we're over here in the Netherlands. Things are great. We're Protestant. Awesome. And um, she was like, yeah, I don't want England to be Catholic either. My dad's nuts. He's got a new son who I don't really even know. He made him a Catholic. So what the frig am I supposed to do? I want to be a queen. And so she and her husband actually helped overthrow her father so that they could take the English throne and oust James from the monarchy. And so unfortunately, this is exactly what happened. They were successful. They took over the throne and James fled to France. Okay, so... James's efforts to make England Catholic and spread Catholicism through England were done, pretty much. And so, um, as soon as he was out, there it, it was no bueno time for Catholics in Britain, okay? He was gone, hit the protection and support of the crown for Catholics was gone. There was a huge kind of revolt um, and a, the spread of this really anti-Catholic fervor led by the new government and um, who was, would support the Protestant population of England in this um, sort of bullying and anti-Catholic um, rhetoric and stuff. So um, England had really only just... Um, they, they <laughs> so they really had never gotten over this, like just recently, just, just recently, have they actually passed a law prohibiting... Um, oh, sorry. I don't mean they passed a law. I mean, they actually just ended the law that prohibited their monarchs from marrying Catholics in 2015, you guys. So England never got over this. They made sure that there were laws in place so that their monarchs could not marry Catholic people because they so don't want England to be Catholic. So that just ended. Whew. But anyway, there was, um, you know, some good things about the transition. After William and Mary took power, um, they introduced the 1689 Bill of Rights. And this is a really, really important document. It's become a large part of the basis of the British Constitution of today. And it actually really helped inspire the American Bill of Rights that was written by our founding fathers, you know, 100 years after the fact. They used this document um, for inspiration, and so a lot of our Bill of Rights actually is based on William and Mary's 1689 Bill of Rights as well. So um, a lot of the purpose of the Bill of Rights was to censure James II for his acts as king, um, and actually the, like, the purpose of, of that was to institute more limits on the power of the monarchy and put more power in the rights of parliament. And so you can see how that kind of translate in, translates into the separation of powers that the American government is based on, making sure that the president has these two other branches that are checking him so that he can't get to a certain place where he could just decide to change the governing faith of the country, even though America doesn't have that, but, you know, do something that grand or extreme um, with, without any type of real control from the other branches of government. So that's kind of how that translated into some really important influence in the Americas um, coming from this, uh, this event. So um, 
Yeah, back to the feudy fun stuff. So about King's, King James II, another important thing about him to know is that he was a steward. And I'm sure you guys have heard of the name of the Stuarts before. They are this Scottish family. And so his, uh, his family, the Stuart seat of power originated in Scotland. And it's because they were stewards of the Scottish realm. And they became stewards of the Scottish realm after coming to Scotland with the Norman conquest of 1066. So this goes way, way back in British history. Okay, so the Stuart family from the very beginning after the Norman Conquest were super important and they became kind of like the, the important royal family of Scotland. They didn't inherit the throne of Scotland until 1371 when the first monarch, Robert II, became um, king. And Robert II was actually the grandson of Robert the Bruce, who, of course, we all know from Braveheart. And so they weren't um, rulers yet, but they were a very important family, obviously. Um, but yeah, in, in 1371, Robert the Bruce's grandson did actually inherit the throne. And so they remained kings and queens of Scotland, and sometimes England, um, through the unification of the two in 1707 by Queen Anne. Okay, so this is, so yeah, so they were kings in Scotland. They also became English monarchs. Um, obviously, because um, James II was an English monarch. His brother was an English monarch. Um, and his daughter, uh, Queen Anne, was also an English monarch. Well, Queen Mary was too. Duh. But they basically became unified. And James's second daughter, Queen Anne, basically was the last Stuart to sit on the throne in England. Oh my gosh. I probably could just do an entire podcast on Queen Anne because she is so interesting. But it's really interesting time-wise that this podcast is coming out now because there does happen to be a an Oscar-nominated movie out at the moment about Queen Anne called The Favorite. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but I really do want to see it. And uh, maybe I'll go see it and then we can do an, a whole podcast on her. But anyway, she's a very interesting figure. And sadly, she was the last of the Stuart line to sit on the throne. I see Anne as a very tragic figure. This, like, this really poor woman. So William and Mary took the throne from James II. They became monarchs. And James's son could not take the throne, the one that was Catholic, because they had been ousted. Um, and they had fled to France, and so they were no longer in power. His son couldn't inherit the throne technically anymore. So when both William and Mary had died and didn't have an heir, the next in line to the throne technically was Mary's sister, Anne. Anne was also a daughter of James II, but she was also Protestant. So Anne took over the throne from her sister. And Anne had a tough life, you guys. I know that Historically, we have like a lot of really interesting information about her that points to the fact that maybe she wasn't that, you know, great of a person, but she was a very interesting figure and God, she had a hard life. Like, I just have a lot of empathy for Anne. So she was pretty sickly. She had a myriad of physical um, problems 
And I'm no doubt she had a myriad of emotional problems as well, um, stemming from things she'd been through in her life. But um, after she took the throne, she became pretty obese. Um, she be also became pretty lame. Um, and so she had gout. She had a bunch of problems. So she was like, you know, having a hard time. Not a hard time, you guys. And I understand why. Because in as many years, Anne endured 17 pregnancies. 17 pregnancies. Before she took the throne. 12 of her 17 pregnancies ended in miscarriage or stillborn babies. She had five children that actually lived past birth. But of those five, four of them were dead by the age of two. Just think about this, you guys. Think about what it would be like living in this time and being a mother who got pregnant repeatedly over and over and over again. Every single year you would get pregnant and your baby would die. When she had a baby that lived past, you know, a couple of days, I'm sure I can't even imagine what it was like thinking, oh my God, I finally have a child. And then they, as, I can't even like talk about it, I'll get choked up. But, and then they, as an infant or um, toddler, pass away as well. Like losing four children before the age of two, after having so many miscarriages and stillborn children, I, I can't even, I can't. She had one son, Prince William, and who, who lived past the age of two. He was her prized son, the heir to the throne, Prince William, her only surviving child until he was 12. And then he died. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. I can't, as a mother, like, I can't imagine this woman's life. And this all happened to her before she took the crown when she was on the sidelines watching the drama unfold with her sister and her father, all of this is going on, and Anne is enduring this personal hell for 17 years. She goes through all of this. It's, I can't even. I can't even, you guys. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make this sad. Now this is sad. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta change the mood here. Oh, it's so sad. But anyway, interesting life. There are There's a lot of primary sources um, that give us some insight into her life and her role and what she was like. In the movie The Favorite, they, I know that they tackle the potential that we have from some documentary evidence that she may have had a female lover or a companion at least. Um, and so that's an interesting aspect that I, I'm not going to go into today, but possible. But anyway, she did become queen, and she died without an heir because her only living child died at the age of 12. So um, when, she, when Queen Anne finally did die from her poor health, um, she didn't have an heir. And so at that point, the British throne passed to her nearest Protestant rel relative because it couldn't be Catholic now. Um, and her nearest Prote uh, Protestant relative was from the House of Hanover. And so that ushered in the age of an entirely new royal line of England. And so what does all of this have to do with a valley in the Scottish Highlands full of kilt-wearing clansmen, you ask? Well, 
The transition of power from James II to William and Mary was a huge event for all of Britain. It affected everyone. It also complicated relations with mainland Europe, especially France, where James II took refuge after he was ousted. It really charged the religious landscape of Britain to a dangerous level, and this level of chaos prompted a show of power from the new government to attempt to assert some control over the situation and the people that they were ruling who were largely at odds. And Glencoe was used as an unfortunate example by some of the new administration of King William to demonstrate that disloyalty in this time was not an option. So basically, there's a new sheriff in town. And so let's talk a little bit about England and Scotland and how Glencoe got caught in this, in the middle of this situation. So William, uh, William of Orange, William King, William and Mary King of, of England now, of Britain. William's problem with the Scots was that many of the clans remained loyal to James, James II. They supported James trying to regain the crown. They wanted James to remain king. And so James didn't go to France and then just like disappear into the shadows and shut up. He wanted to be king again. And so he decided to try and get his kingdom back. He um, wanted to um, start an uprising and try and oust William and Mary from the throne. And so this was the first Jacobite uprising that happened in 1689. And many of the Highlanders in Scotland were Jacobites. Now, the name Jacobites, um, it's a name that James's supporters adopted from the Latin iteration of his name, which was Jacobus. And that was developed during the Renaissance. So, in case you were wondering, why weren't they called Jamesites or something like that? Um, it's because James's Latin name is Jacobus. And so, that is where the name Jacobites came from. So a lot of Britain's Jacobites were Catholic, and so it's not really a surprise that they would support James over William um, after James was ousted from the throne for being Catholic. And so Jacobites did tend to be Catholics and other religious minorities, like Episcopalians. And so large swaths of support for James came from Ireland and the Scottish Highlands, pockets of lowland Scotland and northern England, where there were more Catholics, Episcopalians, and other religious minorities. And it's because William's um, agenda was Anglican. It didn't include extending a friendly hand to the Catholic minority of Britain, as James had done, and so they didn't like that as much. And also, William wasn't a part of the Scottish lineage. He wasn't a Stuart. Mary was, but James wasn't, or sorry, William wasn't. And so the Scottish royal family of the Stuarts had been part of the English monarchy for so long that the Scottish people wanted representation. And William came to the throne, he ousted the Stuart king, and William had no love for the Scottish people. He wasn't Scottish. His ancestry wasn't Scottish. And so, like, is it really a huge surprise that Scotland wouldn't be too pumped about that, you know? So here's what happens. In 1691, William makes a proclamation that any of the clans that swore an oath of allegiance to him would be pardoned for any of the Jacobite activity they had taken part in during the first Jacobite rebellion. And the clans had been in negotiations about this with some time, 
uh, with an influential member of the Scottish nobility named James Campbell. He was the first Earl of Breadalbane, who William had enlisted to buy their loyalty for the crown. So James Campbell, first Earl of Breadalbane, is, he's working for, for William, TBH, you know? But he's the guy who's up in Scotland negotiating with the clansmen. And so he's who they are dealing with mostly. And so when the Jacobite clans, when the chiefs resisted signing this new oath to William, Bertelbein tries to make a deal with them, sort of under the table, that if they sign the oath, cool, but they should do it, but they could still be talking to James um, on the side <laughs> and seeing if James would sign an oath for the sake of their own safety with the understanding that if he ever came back to fight William for the crown, the chiefs could return to his side and fight for the Jacobite cause again. So Bradelaine was like, sign the oath to William so that you don't get in trouble, but like, make sure that James knows you still support him. And if he ever came back and tried to another uprising, wanted to steal the throne, you could just flip sides and go fight for James. It's cool. What? So um, this was a deal that pretty much convinced most of the chiefs to agree to sign the oath to William but they wouldn't do it until they had received word from James from France that James was in support of this deal. And so William gave them a deadline of January 1st, 1692 to sign their oath. And most of the chiefs had received James's approval and had no issue getting to a British, British magistrate um, to complete the oath on time by January 1st, 1692, um, once they heard from James. And so it was like, okay, cool. Like, we're still Jacobites, James knows that we support him, but we have to sign this stupid oath to William so that he doesn't come after us, basically. But this is where things went wrong. And so a chain of events started with this oath and the fact that William required all of the clan chiefs to sign this oath to him. And a couple of things went wrong, and it was, um, yeah, I'm going to talk a lot more about it, but... Basically, there was a huge massacre by the British of this Scottish clan, and a lot of people died, um, and it was pretty shitty. So, yeah. That's where things ended up when William and Mary took over the throne and James went to France, and then suddenly the Scottish clansmen are like, what the hell do we do? They kind of really stuck in a hard place here. And so, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a bad look for them. It's a bad look for the people of Glencoe, especially. And so we will get really in-depth into what happens to cause this massacre uh, next. So, I mean, we're going to talk about what went wrong here. We have to talk about this one guy, okay, this dude, who was a bad dude, in my opinion. IMO. Um, the whole affair, all of this stuff with the oath-taking and um, the contracts and all that was being overseen by the King, King William's Secretary of State for Scotland. He had this guy. His name was John Dalrymple. He was the Master of Stair. He was the Secretary of State for, for Scotland, but he worked for King William. Um, and so Dalrymple was an ambitious guy. He had a grudge against the Highland Jacobites. He needed to prove to his, to William, that just because he had been working under James II, 
um, and that they were kind of friends. They were kind of buds. He was loyal to William now. He didn't have Catholic sympathies. He didn't, he wasn't on the side of the Jacobites or anything like that. And so Dalrymple, Master of Stair, he's the guy basically believed to be the mastermind behind the devious plot to make an example of one of these Highland groups and the groups that were supposed to be signing this oath to William. And so he had a particular dislike for one clan, the MacDonald clan. And this made them easy targets. And so Dalrymple kind of, we think, basically targeted the MacDonald clan. And so um, this is where Glencoe comes into it. <laughs> so Glencoe, the place, is situated in a really savage part of the Scottish Highland landscape. Settled deep in a glen between craggy mountains. It's got limited escape routes. And the chief of the Glencoe McDonald's was this dude called McGeehan. And his people had lived there since the 14th century. And they had fought alongside Robert the Bruce at Bannockburn. Very, very famous Scottish battle. And so this, uh, this family was known as the McKeans. Um, Although the chiefs... Okay, so this is a thing. So the, the chief... They were known as the McKeans. And the chief of the Glencoe McDonald's was known as McKeon, but his first name was actually Alistair. And so the name thing is complicated with the clans and the families and all that stuff. So I'm gonna try to break it down. So McDonald is the clan name and is technically also their last name. So McKeon is really more of a family name that, that kind of got attached to the McDonald's from Glencoe by the founder of this family who was based in Glencoe, right? The founder of the Glencoe McDonald's, his name was Ian Og Fruich McDonald, or something to that effect. So his first name was Ian. And so all of his descendant chiefs were also named, were, they were named Mick Ian, which means son of Ian, right? Um, and so although it was... I guess to us, it'd be kind of like their middle name. <laughs> this is so confusing. So the, the chief that we're going to talk about, who was chief of the Glencoe McDonald's at the time of the massacre, his name was Alistair Ruit McIan McDonald. Alistair Ruit McIan McDonald. Something like that. Um, that was his name. But so they were part of the larger clan of McDonald. It's not just this one family that lives in Glencoe. There's more than one family in the McDonald clan. But this particular family, these are sort of known as septs, different families within the same clan. Um, this particular sept is known by their family name, the McKeans. Get it? <laughs> so they are the Glencoe McDonalds, but they are also the McKeans because they are from the lineage of Ian, who was the founder of this family sept. So they call the chief of this family McKean. So that's what I'm going to be calling him for the rest of the story, just so that you understand. Um, so that's a little bit about the Scottish names and the clans and all that stuff. Kind of neat. Um, if you wanted to hear about maybe my name and Scottish heritage, then keep listening because this is a good time to talk about it. 
So we can break down my name for you because I am a quarter Scottish. Um, and that's part of my history as well. It's my last name because it is my father's side of the family who is Scottish. We used to be the McNevins. Um, we did have the A in the name of Mac, which means son of. But it, the A was taken out of the name at some point after my ancestors emigrated to northeastern Canada from Scotland. So we became the, we were the McNivens, now we're the McNivens. But, um, so the McNivens, uh, my family uh, lineage, they're one of 37 sects. Remember, those are like different families within a clan. So the McNivens are one of 37 sects of Clan Macintosh. So similar to how the McIans were a lineage in Clan McDonald's, the McNivens were a lineage from Clan Macintosh. And so they hailed originally from lands near Inverness, um, which is south of Loch Ness. So it's kind of close um, to Loch Ness, if you're familiar with where that is in Scotland. And um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's my clan <laughs> um, about them. A marriage in the 13th century put the Macintosh at the head of the Chatton Confederation. And this was one of the most powerful collections of clans in Scottish history. So the Macintosh were actually pretty instrumental part of the Chatton Confederation, who were like really powerful and big and awesome. Um, <laughs> so the name Macintosh, it comes from the Gaelic uh, Mac and uh, something like that, or son of Mac, um, son of the Thane or leader. So that's what Macintosh means, son of a leader. This name was adopted by Shaw Macduff, who was a son of the Earl of Fife in the 12th century. And Macduff and the Earl of Fife, if you are familiar from that period, are related to the story of Macbeth from, from Shakespeare fame. So, um, yeah, it kind of comes out of that period and uh, connections between the Macduff and the Earl of Fife. So Shaw Macduff is the one who adopts the name son of the leader. Uh, because his father was the Earl of Fife. So you get it? He's son of the Earl Mac Antoisich, Macintosh. So that's how that works. So the Macintosh were also Jacobites. And so my ancestors fought in the first and second Jacobite uprisings. And unfortunately, they were all but decimated, um, as were a lot of the um, Highland Scottish clansmen in the Battle of Culloden in 1746. And so my family peaced out uh, of Scotland not long after that for America, and which is not surprising since life for Highlanders in Scotland was complete hell after Culloden. The British defeated the Scottish Highlanders at Culloden, and after that they basically tried to stamp out Highland culture from Scotland. And so they tried to end the clans, they tried to end Scottish traditions and cultural narratives, and they basically was a witch hunt, is what it turned into. So a lot of Scottish folk left Scotland in the mid-18th century, and my family was the same. They left Scotland, they went to Canada, they lived in Newfoundland and Prince Edward Island for about a century, and then they came to Boston, and then later to New York, where I was born. So, yeah, that's how we got here and how I became the fabulous New York-born McNiven that I am. <laughs> and this is, of course, really what you are here to learn, right? 
Uh, no. What were we talking about? Oh, yes. We were talking about the Glencoe Massacre. I promise we are almost there. So back to the story. So we know about the McKeans of Glencoe. And we know that the big bad master of Stair, John Dalrymple, has it out for them. And we know that the chiefs of the Highland clans are all required to sign an oath of allegiance to King William of Orange by January 1st. Even though most of them are still secretly loyal to James II, who is in France, and Catholic. And even though they aren't big fans of the new monarchy. So what happens next? So the chiefs start to receive word one by one from James, instructing them to sign this oath to William to protect themselves from the king's threats of violence. And most are able to sign the oath by the deadline, but of course, Chief McKeon did not. Um, the reason why we think Chief McKeon did not sign the oath by the deadline of January 1st was because he did not receive James's letter giving him permission to until two days before the deadline. And it's thought that there may have been foul play involved here in delaying the letter from getting into his hands, um, that a rival clan who didn't like the McKeons, something about some alleged cattle theft, I don't know, they had beef. <laughs> Get it? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so a rival clan, we think maybe, who had beef with the McKeons, um, delayed the letter from getting to them. And so anyway, um, there was also bad weather. It was January. It was not good time in the Highlands. Um, either way, McKeon didn't get the letter from James giving him permission to sign the oath until it was almost too late. And so he had very few options on how to get this oath signed by the time he got the letter. So he did go to the nearest military post, the nearest British military post in Fort William, and he asked the governor over there to oversee his oath. Um, the governor's name was John Hill, and Hill said that he couldn't do that. He wasn't the right person. Um, so he turned McKeon away, and he sent McKeon to the proper magistrate who was in Inverary, um, and he sent a letter with him saying that he did arrive on time to sign the oath. And he said, so recognize, you know, when he signs it, that he was here. He did come to sign the oath on time. But it took McKeon three more days from Fort Orange to get to Inverary. And once he got to Inverary, the magistrate wasn't there. <laughs> the magistrate didn't even get there for another three days to take his oath. And so McKeon actually finally gets to sign the oath on February 6th, even though it was due on February 1st. And then he signs it. He gives the letter to the magistrate saying, hey, I was there on time. It's just that this dude in Fort William couldn't take the oath for who knows why, some reason. And so he sent me the oath, basically. So he did sign the oath. Um, he wasn't the only chief who signed it late, but that didn't matter. <laughs> when all of the paperwork with the oaths on them were brought to John Dalrymple, Master of Stair, um, he looked at McKeon's signature on the document and he crossed it off. He refused to even recognize the excuse that McKeon had for signing late um, and he crossed his name off the list and he refused to accept his oath. So this is basically exactly what Dalrymple was hoping that would happen. Um, he ended up having a scapegoat to pin the simmering unrest of the Scottish people on. 
and an example to make of them. So he was looking for someone to make an example out of, and McKeon just happened to give him an excuse to target his clan. Um, the McDonald's were not a favorite of Dalrymple. He wasn't a fan. They were troublemakers. Yes, that's right. They were troublemakers. They had few friends. They were not hashtag Team William and Mary. They were like the riffraff of the Highland clans. They were the riffraff the Dalrymple hoped to stamp out. And so what followed after that was the infamous Glencoe Massacre. But if you want to find out what happened, you're going to have to tune in to the next episode. Because if I kept talking now and told you the entire story of what happened at the Glencoe Massacre, um... We would be here for like another hour and it's already 45 minutes in. So you guys, this is where the story ends for today. Um, So now you have the entire backstory. You've learned about Queen Anne. You know about her gout. You know about James II and William and Mary and John Dalrymple, the master of stare, and all of the things that you need to know to understand what happens next when people stop being polite and start getting real in Glencoe, Scotland, where a bunch of people are about to die. So... Thank you all very much for joining me for this uh, first episode of the podcast in a very, very long while. Um, I had so much fun recording this. I'm going to, in fact, just record the next episode right now. <laughs> um, so I'm going to release these for you guys pretty soon uh, after each other so that you don't have to wait to catch up on the rest of the story. But for now, that's going to do it for me. I hope to be back soon with another fun, exciting wonderful podcast for you guys oh my gosh wait a second i just realized i didn't even do a scottish accent the entire episode so far oh my god am i even i must have forgotten how to podcast you guys am i even jenny is this even the struggling archaeologist guide to getting dirty anymore if there's no accents oh lord so the scottish accent is very difficult but i will i'll share you guys a secret um, of what usually gets me into the accent is I have to do a line from a show, the musical Brigadoon, which takes place in a mythical, magical Scottish village, uh, one day a year. And um, I'm not going to tell you the whole story of Brigadoon, except for the fact that it is a musical that I've been in twice. Um, And so I have done the Scottish accent a lot during my months of Brigadoon-ness. And I was actually once the dialect coach for a production of Brigadoon. Because at callbacks, the director was like, your Scottish accent is on point. Why don't you teach everyone else to do it too? And I was like, okay. So um, I guess you could say I'm kind of like a Scottish accent aficionado. If you consider that to be a thing when one has absolutely no formal training whatsoever in how to do a certain accent, but just kind of picked it up pretty well and does the stage version of it, but not the real life version of it okay, I guess that's the thing. So anyway, I do these lines from the character Fiona from Brigadoon to get my Scottish accent. Let me think. What is it? Um, okay, okay, ready. Tis just when a lass falls in a rout of love, she knows it right away. 
Isn't that great? I love that line. So, um, um, I don't really know what else to say in my Scottish accent. And um, if I just blabber on about it, then I'm going to start sounding ridiculous and Scottish people are going to start coming after me um, saying that I am like the worst at the Scottish accent. Um, so I, I don't really know what else to say uh, except that if I were in a production of Brigadine right now then I would be doing a really, really good job. So that's going to be it for today's podcast. I will have the next one out for you shortly um, and you will find out all of the dirty details about what happened on that fateful day in the tragic uh, Glencoe massacre. You know, I, I, I worked the accent in. Um, I feel like I should sing something. So perhaps I will leave you guys today. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm going to do this. Um, why don't I sing for you a line, a, a line from um, Brigadoon? <laughs> I think that'd be fun. So this is, uh, this is my girl Fiona singing a lovely song from Brigadoon. <clears throat> Waiting for my dearie is sweeter to me than wooing any lady on other When he comes, my dearie, one look and I'll know that he's the dearie I have been wanting so. There's a laddie weary and wandering free Who's waiting for his dearie, me <laughs> oh, I just sang a lot. I hope that wasn't weird. Was that weird? Anyway, I love Brigadoon. Go check it out, you guys. Oh, Gene Kelly. So good. So good. Anyway, that's it for me. There's been accents. There's been singing. There's been English history. There was Queen Anne. There was gout. There was the Master of Stare. There was a history lesson about my name. This podcast has it all. (laughs) Okay, you guys, we'll catch you next time. But for now, I'm going to say it. McNiven out!